Hello and welcome to Adverse Reactions Season 2. My name is David Faulkner and this is my co-host. And Chappelle. As much fun as the first season of Adverse Reactions was, I think Season 2 is better. Hidden. Secretive. Exactly. The toxicology that happens when you're not looking. Or toxicology that you forgot about. It's still important and we're here to talk about it. Welcome to Season 2 of Adverse Reactions. Hidden toxicology. of monkeys and men. Rhesus macaques, which is what we have here at our center, can get COVID, and they are a critical animal model for the testing of vaccines. In fact, all of the vaccines that we are using currently have been tested in rhesus macaque monkeys that have been experimentally infected with COVID-19, or SARS-CoV-2, I should say. Or Lisa Miller says wildfire smoke isn't monkey business. Based upon the imaging studies, it would suggest that the animals have have some functional deficits in their respiratory tract. So we're going to test that by putting activity collars around them. So basically a variation of the Apple Watch is gonna be in the collars. Welcome, Lisa, to our show. I'd like for you to introduce yourself, please, to our listening audience. My official title is professor at the School of Veterinary Medicine at the University of California, Davis. The other hat that I wear is I serve as the Associate Director of Research here at the California National Primate Research Institute, and I also lead the Respiratory Diseases Research Group out here at the Primate Center. Well, you say primate research, and I'm thinking, is it apes with pipetters and lab coats? <laughs> it's a great visual. I'm really enjoying that. No. <laughs> Darn. We have our investigators out here doing that. Oh, okay. So the California National Primate Research Center is, oh gosh, I believe we're one of seven because it's shifted over the years, national primate research centers. And there are other small primate centers across the country, but there are basically seven large NIH funded centers. So what does that mean? These are centers that are dedicated to non-human primate research. So the programs vary across the country. So the California Center is located just offside of the UC Davis campus. As you'd imagine, housing, caring for, raising non-human primates is not an inexpensive process. So we really rely on the support of the National Institutes of Health to provide the basic infrastructure for our centers. In terms of the overall acreage we have, I think we sit on about 300 acres out here. Depending upon what season of the year, upwards of 5,000 non-human primates. Wow. Yeah, that's always a surprise to folks. That is a barrel of monkeys. <laughs> that is truly a barrel of monkeys, yes. These are rhesus macaque monkeys. Some of these animals are quite large, and about half of them live outdoors in what we call field cages that are about half acre in size. So it's about half of a football field. They live in family units outside, and they breed in family units outside. So it's a terrific opportunity for those of us who are still 
studying effects of environment and studying the effects of environment on various aspects of non-human primate health. We also have, not surprisingly, a lot of investigators out here who are behavioralists, and we are a consortium. We communicate frequently in terms of the research that we do and the programs that we offer. We're all very tightly connected on the national level, which allows you to also look very broadly across the country in terms of what's happening research-wise at the various centers. So that's the fun part of the job. When I think of non-human primate research, I tend to think of some of the contract labs with their research and pharmaceuticals or whatever. So this isn't anything to do with those kinds of research projects. Is that true? The centers do support some industry contracts if, in fact, we have room and the capabilities to support those sorts of studies. But we try to focus on those studies that really are intellectually rewarding to us. For example, I'm a respiratory biologist and had an opportunity several times over the past few years to test new compounds that are going into preclinical trial for asthma. When those sorts of opportunities come up, and I think of them as opportunities because you really want to be able to take the animal models that you've developed and see that research translate into the clinic. That's why we work on non-human primates. In that sense, we can do some industry contracts, but the bulk of it, I would say, is focused on NIH-supported as well as some NSF-supported research. So lots of infectious disease. As you would imagine, COVID has been a major focus in the past year and a half for all of us. They get COVID, the non-human primates? Yes. Wow. Not all species, but rhesus macaques, which is what we have here at our center, can get COVID. And they are a critical animal model for the testing of vaccines. In fact, all of the vaccines that we are using currently have been tested in rhesus macaque monkeys that have been experimentally infected with COVID-19, or SARS-CoV-2, I should say. Wow. I did not know that. It's been an interesting year in the past year and a half because of all of the issues with the pandemic. We have to provide animal care 24-7 for a large group of animals that are susceptible to SARS-CoV-2. So we had to keep our animals uninfected and healthy, as well as keep the humans caring for those animals uninfected and healthy. So it was quite a challenge. This is a heroic thing, especially I'm thinking March of 2020, we had no idea what the situation would be, how the virus was transmitted most readily. So what was that like trying to adapt, knowing that there's this big mystery event, but you've still got to do your job and take care of these animals? It was extremely stressful. Fortunately, because of the issue of disease transmission, actually both ways between humans to the monkeys, as well as monkeys to humans, we already have safety procedures in place. So if you are directly handling an animal, you have a tremendous amount of PPE. That protocol is already in place. So it was actually simply a matter of ratcheting it up so that all of us coming in and out of the facility had to wear masks, which is what we're all used to now. And we're continuing to do that. That, I believe, has been really the key mitigating factor in keeping our animals healthy. Actually, all of the centers have been very fortunate in that all of our animals were able to stay healthy. 
people have different ideas about the roles of animals in research. I'm curious, how do you talk about the role of animal models, especially because non-human primates, there's something more visceral there, I think, rather than just mice. It's a sensitive subject for a lot of people, and I certainly am aware of that. I respect everybody's opinions in terms of animal research. What I try to emphasize is the importance of this animal model. This is really the step between the early stage studies in rodents and taking a drug, for example, to the clinic in humans. I try to emphasize that monkeys play a critical role in taking a basic observation in the laboratory to a human clinical trial. For the purposes of safety for the public, it's important to do those initial tests in a relevant animal species before going into a human being. And it's particularly important for some of the work that I do with non-human primates, where our interest is very focused on the first year of life, so infants, babies. That's a very sensitive window for a lot of environmental exposures. And we have a lot of observational data in humans in the sense that we can track children in terms of whether they develop health outcomes if they live in areas that are heavily polluted. So we can do those sorts of observational studies. But in terms of providing definitive mechanistic proof, we need to have those relevant animal models to confirm scientifically in an experiment that pollutant A causes asthma in a child if they're exposed to high levels of it. Our regulatory agencies absolutely need that information. From the perspective of toxicology, you need to use multiple animal models. And in fact, my laboratory does use rodents for some of our initial early stage observations and experimental testing. And then we go to the non-human primate as our proof of principle studies. But in many cases, particularly for studies that involve studying the immune system, for example, the immune system of non-human primates and humans is very unique in terms of the timing relative to birth. That's a process that is very difficult to recapitulate in mouse studies. I also am interested in the upper respiratory tract, and it is very difficult to do these things in mice and rodents because they are obligate nose breathers. So you get a lot of scrubbing and that's different. It's really hard to get enough tissue sample and just seeing some of the differences. So from a handling standpoint, I can see why you really would rather have a larger set of lungs that is more relevant to what I would deal with. I understand the push for alternatives, but I think of this, you know, I'm a parent, even though my daughter is an adult now, you want to make sure that all of the critical testing that is needed to ensure a drug, a vaccine, whatever that is going into your child has been tested to the best of our ability. No matter how sophisticated a computer design algorithm for drug testing is, you can't recapitulate the immune system, the respiratory system of a child. Agreed. I think it's important to emphasize also that in terms of overall numbers,
numbers of animals, if you really look at the numbers, the numbers of non-human primates that are used in studies relative to rodents is really minuscule. We consider the non-human primate as the proof of principle study, and it's only done after numerous studies have taken place in a large number of smaller animal species. What drew you to do this work in the first place, to work with primates? And also, what sort of students are attracted to this work? I can tell you, I literally stumbled into it. <laughs> and I think that happens all the time, right? The best research you stumble into. <laughs> Trip over a monkey when you're walking to the hall. That's right. When I started off, I was a postdoc and I actually had moved from my postdoc position at Stanford back to UC Davis. I jumped into the respiratory group because I had worked previously with a faculty member in the respiratory group out here. And this group was given a challenge specifically by NIEHS because this group at UC Davis, primarily led by Charlie Plopper, had really contributed a significant amount of important data on ozone and ozone-related toxicology and modeling some of the health impacts of ozone in small numbers of non-human primates. So NIHS came back to Charlie and said, we think this is important, but we really want to understand how air pollution affects the development of asthma. I had literally just started as a postdoc at that time. None of us knew how to do an asthma model. I had a lot of training in immunology before coming back to UC Davis. And I thought, wow, what an opportunity to come in literally on the ground floor, develop a model. And I thought, geez, this is an incredible opportunity to take what I've learned both in the respiratory tract as well as in immunology and move it forward. So that's how I started was in the development of a non-human primate asthma model. And in fact, we were the only group nationally, internationally that had this animal model in monkeys using house dust mite. And we showed through a series of publications that air pollution exposure concurrently can really exacerbate the development of asthma, particularly in young animals. So we were modeling development of childhood asthma and how air pollution exacerbates that. So that's how I got started. So the students that I currently have, they're all immunology students. Actually, I take that back. I have one pharmacology student, but they're attracted to the same sort of vision of wanting to work with a species that is highly translatable to humans. The building that I'm in is maybe 50 feet away from our field cages. So you can see that the animals are getting exposed to wildfire smoke, for example, and you can translate that back into the laboratory. So that's what attracts them. A lot of my students actually end up going into industry, which I fully support. I want them to do what they're happy and interested in doing. So do you call yourself a toxicologist? Would I call myself a toxicologist on a good day? <laughs> <laughs> You've got so much of this veterinary DVM background. Your students, you say they, a lot of them have the background in immunology. Are they coming out with an immunology degree? Are they coming out with a tox degree or pharmacology degree? 
how do your students leave you? I would call them immunotoxicology. So I can call myself a toxicologist in that actually it's a course that I'm teaching right now this quarter for our toxicology students is trying to understand how toxicology, toxicants influence the immune system because that's primarily how air pollution, we believe in part influences the development of diseases such as asthma. There's a lot of incredible work that comes out of UC Davis's talks program, especially this work on wildfire smoke that you've alluded to. I feel like we've been saving this delicious dessert, or rather it's like you got several things on your plate. You eat a few things and it's like, all right, time for the potatoes, dive in. So let's dive into the potatoes, the wildfire smoke research that you've done. Can you give us the top line of it? And then we'll dig in from there. Give us the 35,000 smoke level, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> The focus of the work that we're currently doing is to study the immune system response to pathogen mimics, as well as respiratory remodeling in a cohort of animals that were exposed to a high amount of wildfire smoke back in 2008. As far as I'm aware, we're the only group that actually has data on long-term health outcomes, albeit in a monkey, but we're able to track that health outcome and able to show that, in fact, there are pretty striking differences in terms of animals that were exposed outdoors to that wildfire smoke. So what specifically do you see? What happens to these young monkeys that were exposed to wildfire smoke? So two things in our observation, and I should make clear that the beauty of what we've been doing in terms of tracking health outcomes in our colony is that we're able to do everything non-invasively. We've not tracked the same animals over time, but we started with a fairly large cohort. We have maybe four or 500 animals that are born each year in our colony because we are a breeding colony. So we have four or 500 baby monkeys running around outside in our field cages during the summer. That's what happened during this particular event. And so we're able to sample periodically as the animals mature. Now, some of them go off and go on to studies, but there've been a fair number left. And so now they're 13 years of age, which makes them mature adults. So what we're able to do is for the respiratory tract, we've actually been able to image the thoracic cavity and we use CT scans to do the scans. And then also we work with a company that has basically an AI approach to quantifying structural changes so that they can show airways remodeling through the imaging. So we've been able to track that. And it's very clear, crystal clear, that the monkeys that were exposed to this wildfire smoke when they were babies, when they were infants, running around in the field cages have now what appears to be some type of an early stage fibrosis or interstitial lung disease. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty stunning. So that's the lung. And then when we take a blood sample from the animals and we bring it into the lab and then we culture the blood with toll-like receptor ligands, which if you're an immunologist, that triggers an innate pro-inflammatory response. The animals that were exposed to wildfire when they were youngsters, right now they have this hyper-inflammatory response. Initially, they have a suppressed immune response and then it's now reverted into a hyper-response. So I kind of call that like a twitchy lung. Yeah, could be. We've not challenged the animals with 
like an allergen or anything of that nature. We're mostly focused on the structural changes at this point in time. One of the cool things that we're going to do is based upon the imaging studies, it would suggest that the animals have some functional deficits in their respiratory tract. So we're going to test that by putting activity collars around them. So basically a variation of the Apple Watch is going to be in their collars. Nice, nice. So what we're going to do is actually quantify their activity levels mm. to see whether they in fact do have changes in their activity relative to their unexposed counterparts. It's fascinating. I'm just imagining they've got all of this texting each other, (laughs) Apple Watch. But there's a lot of trust involved because they can't see the screen. That's true. Hey, Bill, can you respond? (laughs) What is Marcy saying? So if I understand this right, the idea is that if you have a child that is exposed or an infant exposed to wildfire smoke, it's possible. And what you've seen, it suggests that it affects the lungs for the rest of their lives. Precisely. And the immune system. Yes. What were the levels of the smoke? Because I don't remember, were these animals exposed for a week, a month? So we have Air Resources Board air quality monitor just down the road, fortuitously. So we have the PM 2.5 data available to us. It was one week acute exposure, and then it went away, wind conditions changing, and then it came back for another week. So it's basically just two weeks worth of exposures. But the exposures were at the highest level, two to three times above our air quality standards. I get asked, what made you think of doing this? And I can tell you, I was sitting in my office and I'm looking out the window. It's June and it looks like the middle of winter because it looks like fog. That's how intense the smoke was. So it was clearly visible. That's what the animals were being exposed to. Wow. Monkeys in the mist. Monkeys in the mist. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So you're looking at PM 2.5. These are characteristic smoke particles. So we're thinking about, say, living next to a highway or in a city with a lot of auto traffic or other countries where there's lower emission standards. You sell this with wildfire smoke. Does this also apply to other types of smoke? Or at least should we think in that direction? Maybe it's not a one-to-one. That is the conundrum that the field has now with all of the investigators now trying to study wildfire smoke. It's a very complex mixture. It's highly variable depending upon what is being combusted, what species of biomass, and then throw in all of the man-made products that could potentially combust along with it. Then how old the smoke is. And I mean, there's so many factors involved. So that's one thing. And then we know now that, well, I guess this is a little bit controversial, but in my opinion, if you look at the data very carefully in terms of PM 2.5 exposures globally, it's very clear that not all PM 2.5 is the same chemically. And especially if your readout is health outcomes. So not all PM 2.5, for example, elicits asthma. Sometimes you get other types of respiratory conditions like interstitial lung disease or COPD. I think that those are important clues to us as scientists that not all PM 2.5 is the same in terms of chemical makeup. And I think that's been demonstrated. And I think that would translate into health outcomes in people that are being exposed to it. We just need to figure out what is that magical chemical composition that translates into fibrosis versus COPD versus asthma. I don't think we're there yet. 
it does seem like kind of an academic question. It's a lung disease is lung disease. And I guess if we can say like exposure to smoke is bad, perhaps that's enough to start taking action. We clearly need more research in understanding what those mixtures are. I mean, that's something that we're planning in the lab now. We've got the observational data outdoors. The next step is to confirm it experimentally. What we're planning to do is use wood smoke particles in combination with other components like phthalates or other chemical constituents that have been picked up on in some of these mixtures. Add those back to see what are the key triggers. And I would start with a cell culture dish and move into the animal models. To clarify, when I say it's an academic question, I don't mean to be dismissive. No, it's important. It's important. So when I was doing my background research, it seems like you have a ton of active grants. You've got a huge teaching load. You're doing this great work. You're mentoring others. You're talking to us. When do you have time to do all of this? <laughs> How do you focus on any one thing, to be honest, because you've got your irons and lots of fires. It's very impressive. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. I think that's the expectation of faculty, right? We're supposed to do it all and juggle a million things. That's just what we're supposed to do. That's got to be hard, too, on a personal life. I would say, to be honest, I believe in self-care. I exercise regularly, religiously. And that's probably, that's my self-care. It's not everybody's self-care. But I think it is important to carve out that time. If you take care of yourself, you can take care of others and do the balancing act and stuff. Good message. So we also have a number of questions that we ask what is the most significant adverse reaction that you've experienced in your life? I have a deathly response to mussels. Never feed me mussels. No paella for me. Ah, <laughs> uh, What would you be doing if you weren't doing what you were doing right now? Maybe I would be a spin instructor or something. <laughs> <laughs> I could see you motivating everybody at Soul Cycle. That's a good one. Low impact. Very important. Low impact. That's right. I've learned a ton today. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. We're so glad to have you. That's season two. I'm done talking. Done. Love it. All right. I'm going to start the recording because I think we got it. Thank you all for joining us for this episode of Adverse Reactions presented by the Society of Toxicology. And thank you to Dave Levy at Maestro Studios. That's Maestro with a three, not an E. Who created and produced all the music for Adverse Reactions, including the theme song, Decompose. The viewpoints and information presented in Adverse Reactions represent those of the participating individuals. Although the Society of Toxicology holds the copyright to this production, it has definitely not vetted or reviewed the information presented herein. Nor does presenting and distributing this podcast represent any proposal or endorsement of any position by the Society. You can find out more information about the show at Adverse Reactions Podcast. Dot com. And more information about the Society of Toxicology on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. I'm Anne Chappelle. And I'm David Faulkner. This podcast was approved by Anne's mom.